Hello and welcome to the latest edition of Confessions from the Witness Box, where I'm extremely lucky this time to be joined by Teresa Mohammed and Laura Lintot. Hi there, I'm Laura and I'm a senior associate at Trowers. Hi there, I'm Teresa and I'm a partner at Trowers. That was probably the most formal start. <laughs> <laughs> Moving then back on, uh, as with all the previous podcasts, we tend to start with a little bit of discussion about how we ended up all working in uh, construction industry when it comes to contentious disputes and how much we all wish we weren't. No, how much we all, we all love it and how, mu- how much fun our journey has been getting here. But that normally involves me trawling through uh, people's LinkedIn profiles and uh, often Strava data. But we'll start with Laura because on your LinkedIn profile, uh, it says that you speak four languages. Five, yes. isn't it? Um, yes, it, it is five. Well, it depends how you count it because Czech and Slovak are very, very similar. Um, but technically, they are separate languages. So, and then there is German and uh, Romanian, and a little bit of English. A little bit of English. <laughs> <laughs> Still working on it, as you will hear. <laughs> so, do you do much now in foreign languages, or are you predominantly English-based? Um, it's it's predominantly I'm using the English language. But having said that, I, I use other languages sometimes as well. Previously, on international arbitrations, I used my German and Romanian. But I just wanted to say it's both a curse and a blessing. It's a blessing in the sense that you get to understand, you know, what people say around you, even in other languages. It's a curse that you understand what they are actually saying about you. Um, and also, um, you have an accent in all of the languages. So my very first language was actually Czech, and now I'm told I have an English accent in Czech, so you can't win. And, and what's the best you've ever heard, which you weren't meant to have heard? whilst in a meeting? I think it would, there would be a lot of uh, censorship on this um, podcast if I said that. No, I'm, I'm joking. Nothing, nothing too bad, but it's interesting. <laughs> I, one thing I found very interesting about Laura is um, her lack of exposure to snacks of the 80s that us Brits oh, have no. enjoyed. And that's been an education. So, you know, we don't have to worry about Laura's technical skill, but what we do have to worry about is the fact that she hasn't tried what sits, Monster Munch, uh, frazzles, none of that. What are they again? Exactly. Oh. <laughs> However, it was back in the 80s, I found a packet in a service station uh, a couple of weeks ago of lemon puffs. And I was so excited to have found lemon puffs. I bought three packets because I thought, that's one for me just to eat today. And I want to take some home for the children because they're amazing. I took them home and I ate them and they weren't right. They've they, changed. They've Scampi changed. fries? I've had, had them for years. No? Oh. No, no, I'm, I'm sorry. I need to get educated. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> so to have gone from um, Czechoslovakia to then working in the Middle East and where, where, where else have you worked around the world? Um, I was in Japan for six months when I was training at White Case, which was amazing. Um, and then, as you said, we uh, later on I had a couple of arbit- we had arbitrations in the Middle East, um, and then uh, the wonderful UK. 
And I suppose my experience is I haven't actually been posted overseas for work, but we've done lots of international work for clients. So lots of stuff with Middle Eastern clients, clients investing in the UK, um, a really interesting Japanese arbitration, things like that. So that's sort of the international reach in terms of work that I've done. But I think the one thing I would say about construction is it does give you the ability to do that, doesn't it? It does give you the option to work on projects domestically and internationally, which I think is a way that we're not really, we don't really sell our careers very well. And I think that, you know, leading on to something we were discussing about how we ended up doing construction. I just feel that a lot of us would say when we were thinking about careers, it wasn't something that was really explained, the breadth and the depth of it. And certainly being a construction lawyer is not something you're told about when even when you're at law school. It's not really made clear that that's an, an obvious career path. And it is. Um, and I think that, I mean, for me, I was always focused on doing sort of contentious work and litigation. That was what I knew about and thought would be exciting. And when I was you know, starting off, I was encouraged to do construction because it would always be very busy, very dynamic, working on sort of tangible projects internationally, domestically. And actually, I think, yeah, that's that's absolutely true. But it was something that was completely undersold to me um, as a as a young, you know, person trying to qualify. So, so did you both do seats in construction when you were trainees? I didn't know. Neither did I. So, so how, how did you get into construction then as a legal... Avenue. Well, I have to sort of credit and stroke blame Anthony Lavers um, <laughs> because he decided to tell me about all about construction initially and said, you know about this thing called adjudication? And I was like, sorry, what? And he said, you really need to know about that. <laughs> um, so I was like, okay. And he gave me a book and I went away and read it. And um, yeah, I think from then on, and I had some really, really great senior lawyers as mentors who were, you know, this is a great career, do it. And I was lucky enough to, I was a qualified barrister initially, and I was lucky enough to be sponsored um, by Fennick Elliott to do the transfer because at that stage you had to do that. Mm. Um, it wasn't easy. You couldn't sort of credit time and things. Um, and yeah, didn't look back. And, you know, I just think it is such a vibrant and fun thing. And actually there are so many young people doing it now. So that's, that's amazing. But it was just, you know, if you'd said to me when we were at university, we wouldn't have known about that, would we? No, at all. no that's right. But, but surely for lawyers working in construction must be incredibly frustrating a lot of your time because there's so many facets of the case that you're not in control of. Yeah, and I think there is a huge learning curve on each case because obviously we we heavily rely on, and I'm sure maybe this is the same in other specialisms, but we rely on technical experts so much and we have to learn you know, enough to understand what they're trying to communicate. And I guess our learning is almost back to front, isn't it, Laura? Because we learn about narrow issues on a project, so we don't learn about it from the ground up. We learn about the particular thing that's gone wrong. So it can be quite tricky as junior lawyers and even senior lawyers because, you know, you know loads about a particular type of cladding or you know loads about a particular pipe, you know, type of asphalt yeah. or all of a sudden you know about ponding in a particular area or in my case, um, rare newts that trying to cross a road um, <laughs> or a particular kind of lizard that we don't want to disrupt or bats, you know, so things like that that happen and, and you sort of, so you don't really get the overall picture sometimes. Yep. So that's quite tricky. What do you think, Laura? Yeah, no, it's, it's tricky and exciting and I'm, I'm actually glad that we are in a line of business that, that where there's still something to learn um, every, every time there's a new case. Um, I remember that, so when I, when I was a trainee, 
I had seats in litigation, commercial litigation, and project finance. And I loved the project finance seats just because the, the content was, was really exciting in terms of, you know, the, the pipelines and God, God knows what. But then I also loved the, the, the litigation. And, um, and now I am a contentious lawyer and I wouldn't want to be any, anything else. But I do remember that um, back then somebody said to me in commercial litigation, you want to, you want to qualify in construction? That's not sexy enough. And I said to him, what is sexy? A commercial litigation. And I said, I have no doubt about that. Um, but, uh, but what is more sexy than Burj Khalifa or the Channel Tunnel or the Grosvenor Hotel in London? You know, I think that's pretty, pretty good. So, so I did that. Yeah. I think the nice thing about construction, though, is that it's, it's often a very tangible um, field of, I suppose, dispute and law and you can go and see the thing and you can see mm. the equipment being used and it, it's it's not totally ethereal with just principles of law. There are, of course, substantial arguments of law involved in all the cases, but it, the actual thing you're arguing about, it, it's something there which you can go and see and touch, I suppose. <laughs> oh, it's brilliant. I went on a bridge the other day and it was amazing to see and you know, just sort of having the opportunity to go on these site visits, which we, we find it is a great thrill to do it because obviously it's not something we do every day. Um, but that is absolutely brilliant. And I think amazing for learning for junior people, you know, going up to, for example, I remember being five months pregnant and going up to the 50th floor of a tower when the lift was still that sort of shaky metal yeah. cage and, you know, stuff like that. It's just great. Um, and it really does make you understand that the delivery of the project successfully is the aim. You know, that is the ultimate objective. And, you know, it, it's, I, I think it's amazing for learning because then you actually understand where everything fits in. Mm. Um, and our role obviously being important, but really not, not the main event. <laughs> you know, if everybody could sort of think about collaborating in the best interest of the project all the time, then we wouldn't, yeah, like you say, we might, we might be a little quiet. Would you say, Teresa, that we are potentially like the white blood cells um, in the organism of the project? I mean, uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I, 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 that's, that's the best analogy I think we've heard. Ever. I mean, it's the most polite way I've ever heard construction lawyers described. Um, I was thinking more like, you know, sort of agony art problem solvers. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but so what's your view then of things like dispute boards, which make recommendations rather than binding decisions, which is a less bruising process, requires less upfront fees to actually put together a submission to it, but it's non-binding. Beneficial waste of time? I think they're good because I think a lot of the time, if you're acting for a particular party in whatever capacity, professional capacity on a construction project and there's someone else on the other side, there is an element of, well, who blinks first? Mm. And at least if you get a recommendation from somebody that's technically qualified, that sounds sensible, you can say, well, they've suggested that. Not me, not you. Let's go with it. You know, there's a lot of a lot to be said by that. Like like when you have um, evaluations and mediations, of course they're not binding, but I think they can be part of unlocking the entrenchment because it's somebody else saying, "I've looked at this overall, and this is my idea. What do you think?" There's a, there's a lot of psychology behind it, and and because a, a, there's a massive element in disputes of emotion, emotional element, and so you can have all the facts in front of you, and you can have the most practical solution lined up but as we as we all know here sometimes the emotion is so strong that the the instinct is to continue with a dispute and so i think our role is also to advise the client well do you really 
want to do that or to go through an in, in, intermediary like a mediator or dispute board in your what you said so yeah it's, it's an additional element which is quite interesting but things like dispute boards are <coughs> very rarely used I think largely employers are quite reticent to include them in their in their contract drafting I think that's probably you know on us really because we should be advising our clients about them more and suggesting them, I think, because I think a lot of clients, in terms of the dispute provisions, would be led by us. That's the one bit we can lead on. Um, so I think it's down to us to suggest these things and the, and the different forms of, of resolving disputes quickly. So on the swing completely round, let's bounce back onto puppies then. So you are shortly going to be only getting a Labradoodle. Yes, so we are back, back on track with that. Sorry, oh, Teresa. thank goodness for that. I didn't inform you, but uh, yes, oh. we, we nearly bought one a month ago or so. And then uh, for various personal reasons, we, we didn't go ahead with it. But uh, we're still in touch with the breeder. It was a wonderful breeder. Um, and there are puppies born at the end of April, so hopefully end of June. Oh, okay. thank goodness. Are you, are you relieved? I'm so relieved. They're so cute. It's just, I feel it's wrong not, <laughs> to, have not one. to have one. I'm lobbying hard at home for a dog, you see. And this is this is all part of my strategy that you know everyone else has one. You have one. Laura has one. Everyone. Uh, why haven't we? Yeah. Why don't you? Well, quite. Um, mm. I heard that it balances you out, especially as a litigator, with this sort of you know uh, highly stressful job. They just uh, calm you down, and I think it's probably through serotonin levels. Just, just. <laughs> <laughs> um, but probably by keeping you busy as well, but in a different way. You have to focus. You you can't. Mull over what, what happened at work. Did the client, you know, decide this or that way? How am I going to about it? What am I going to tell the barrister? How am I going to respond? I can't think about it anymore. I think that I have to think about the well-being of the puppy. It's great. The puppy. Don't yes. forget, dogs are nicer than people. So I think it's unfair to compare them to humans. They are better than us. So unconditional love, always delighted to see you, even if you've only been gone 20 seconds. You know, so I think we can't, they're not comparable, but they, they, they do make you live longer, mm. make you happy. Yeah. I mean, well, I'm, I'm all pro getting a puppy. I'm just saying that it's like with, with children, children are awesome, but there's that initial baby phase where... They're not really that awesome. That's what I think. I think they are awesome then. I think once you get to, once they become mobile, then you have trouble. No, but when they become mobile, they become useful and you can do <laughs> stuff with them. When, when, <laughs> when they're this needy blob, they're just I a don't bit... know, Dan. I think when they can be contained in a pram, <laughs> they, yes, unreasonable a lot of the time, but actually, you know where they are at all times. They can't go anywhere. I feel like once they get to about 18 months to two and a half, three, you're in a real dangerous time. You know, they're climbing, they're opening cupboards, they're getting yeah. stuff, they're trying to hide successfully from you. But probably when they're about can... five or six, like, that you can, you can start doing stuff you can go hiking on Dartmoor you can go sailing with them and you're not mm. constantly petrified they're going to die yeah <laughs> I'm, I'm not quite at that stage although my five-year-old has started making breakfast now okay awesome. you have to fall into line with what she wants to eat but um, I'm, I'm all for this so she's starting to you know fall into line in that sense and be useful um, so we, she made for my sister, um, smashed avocado on a bagel, but then because Gabriella was doing it, it then got covered in unicorn sprinkles. Why, why, why would it not? Yeah. And apparently that added something. 
Yes. Um, sugar. Visually, largely. yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> largely sugar. But, and visually, it was quite nice. It looked quite good. Teresa, do you actually mentally take your work back home as well? Yeah, I think you do, don't you? We all do it. You can't not. Mm. Yeah. How do you avoid it? So, my husband is an electronic engineer, and I think that's the only reason why he tolerates this, because I will go, you know, hand in hand, we'll walk down the street, and I'm like, oh, look at that crane, don't you think it looks amazing, or that scaffolding, oh, that looks a bit dodgy, maybe there'll be another case coming in. And he understands that, and he doesn't I, tell I, me I, I just want to jump in here, so I've never walked down the street and said that scuffle looks amazing, but... No, me neither. Um, I, that's, that's good. That's, yeah, you've got to love what you do. I do look at cranes, actually, but my kids do that as well. My kids love yeah. massive cranes, because they are pretty cool, aren't they? Um, but yeah, I, don't, I find you take it home, but I don't discuss it uh, with my husband. I don't, we don't talk about work. We definitely don't. But you know what's quite retro is actually having a conference call, which I did the other day. It was like so 2019. No. And the thing is, you've, we've all forgotten how to behave on the phone because <laughs> everyone was talking over everyone because you couldn't see yeah, them yeah, yeah. like we're going to speak. So everyone was constantly going, oh, sorry, sorry, oh, sorry, I'm interrupting again. You know, it's terrible. It's quite funny. Yep. A lot of the communication goes out of the window, unfortunately. What is it, 97 or 95% of communication is not verbal? Um, so we can see each other's faces, barely. Um, but, yeah. I mean, and also, I heard a complaint from, from someone recently as a, as a claims consultant, and they were saying, well, in, in an arbitration or in a hearing or a cross-examination, and then you can't really tell how the witness sometimes feels or how the expert feels and how when they hesitate or their body language, what they're saying, are they comfortable with it or not, that sort of thing, that gets lost as well. There was a study done, I think it was in the first series of lockdowns, where they reckoned that people with less stable internet connections were less convincing in a virtual hearing than people with mm. stable internet connections. Because it takes greater effort as well, trying to understand them, and that's frustrating and if you're frustrated then you're less likely to be positively minded to whatever the other person is saying. That's an interesting point. Mm. So back to our stress release, Ben. So yesterday, to release stress, you um, went to a spin class. <laughs> oh, yes. Yes, we did. We went to this spin class. As Laura described it as like being inside a nightclub. It, it was a bit more trancey than we'd anticipated. We were expecting loud music, but it wasn't... I hadn't really checked the playlist. Um, so it was like being in some sort of, you know, I guess... I want to say like a, a rave in a tent in the 90s. Um, maybe that's the wrong, you know, but anyway, it was a bit like that. Happy Yeah, it was a bit, but then a bit sort of slow and uh, sort of spiritual at one point. It was spiritual. It was also, you know, I, lo I love the fact that it was so dark that you felt like if I'm sweating, nobody can see, which is great. But I'm sure that's the whole point of the spin class is that everybody's sweating. Yeah, everyone's yeah. equally in a bad way. Yeah. But yeah, there were about <laughs> 50 women in there and one man. So he was brave. Um, but yeah, it was... And then there was a weight section, wasn't there? Um, yeah. So yeah. spin class with weights. Yeah, yeah. so basically 45 minutes of hell. How, how, do you, how do you do a spin class with weights? You just do the weights on the bike. You hold the weights. Yeah, yeah. while you're meant to be pedalling. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, at one point I was, I, I was convinced it must have happened before because your, your feet are attached to the bike right yeah. and I thought when I was holding those uh, listeners can't see what I'm doing when I was holding those weights above my head 
uh, not holding to the bar or handles or whatever. So just, 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 a, just, to help, just to help this mental picture, you're, you're on a bike, <laughs> you're in hell for leather, your little legs are like doing yes, 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 yes. and you're holding dumb, dumb yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. whilst doing push presses. Co- correct. Yeah, and that's tricep, what was it? No, bicep curls. Oh, what, what and and, and yes. are you having to curl the um, uh, the weight and time with the pedals? So as, as I go, go faster, go faster, you know, your arms are going, just take your legs. Well, ideally, but my coordination just leaves me at that point. So I, I think ideally we are supposed to be doing that, but we, I just really didn't. But um, yeah. I just thought that you know eventually I'll just slip off and I'll I'll have terrible fractures because my my feet are attached yeah, to the bike. I was convinced she was going to fall off the bike, but I was like, you won't because you're just trapped on it. You can't. So, so, so your feet are trapped on the in bike. The cleats, yeah. You 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 have weights. You happen to move the weights in time with your feet. Yeah, flashing whilst, lights. Whilst flashing lights again. Yeah. Loud music. That's all kind of very strange. And, um, and a motivational speaker at the front end to go faster. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. She's motivational. Yeah. Very terrifying. Also, she walks. She does as a patrol as well so oh, she's, she's not on the bike she is on the bike some of it and then some of it sort of motivationally sort of yelling at everyone and then <laughs> going around and spying on you basically to check your legs are going yeah. you, you are right that there's an amazing analogy here for the lawyer expert relationship where the lawyers are sometimes walking around <laughs> shouting motivational <laughs> quotes you to work harder yeah <laughs> you do that thanks, thanks for that analogy I, I, I should take like that feedback with me <laughs> <laughs> Um, yeah, yeah. Um, I, so it's just a regular um, kind of like trials and handling decompression session. It used to be a thing. So it was actually started by our, one of our colleagues, Stephanie Isak. She got us all into it. This was pre-pandemic. Um, and she introduced us to this, let's go to this great spin class. And they, they also do other types of classes. But anyway, it's her fault. Um, she got us all into it. and then, um, But then since, I guess, all the lockdown and all that business, it kind of out the window but um, I managed to lure Laura there yesterday no thank you very much it was my the second spin class in my life very enlightening I also found it very inspiring the, the, the lady who was the motivational shouter she did something with her voice but initially you know she had the normally pitched so, so, voice so the, the motivational shouter yes <laughs> <laughs> I was amazed and didn't, didn't you find it amazing that in, initially when she was talking to us in a normal you know normal environment uh, it, she was she had the same pitch like we do right now but then during the session she had to shout and you know when you know her her, her voice would go high pitch if, if but she, it didn't normally naturally it would and she did something to her voice when it went much lower and it sounded really really well mm-hmm. and it's something i would love to learn because it really had, was efficient Oh yeah, it was like a death metal kind of. She went from like. It was a bit like it was definitely a thing. Like she was very well rehearsed. Put it this way. Yeah. There was no sort of accent of tracks and her what she had to say. She clearly choreographed it all. Yeah. Um, They're they're professionals, Laura. Talking of inspirational things, so recently I've I've been listening to Pentatonix a lot, which is an Mm. acapella. Uh, They didn't pay me. They didn't pay me to advertise or anything, but they are awesome, and. and they, so now I'm doing a course with them, uh, which is an online one-month course, how to mix things and how to do acapella. Not that I know how to do it, I don't, and that's why I'm doing it. Um, but what I loved, and I told you this yesterday, I think, what I loved in the first session, there was a video of the five of them, and spent not least five of them, five singers sitting down in a room, listening to a new song that they were going to uh, work on, and they held their sheet music, and then they started discussing what sort of... Um, 
effects they would like to use, you know, chorus here or harmony there or percussions there or a bit of beatboxing, rhythm, etc., etc. And the lovely thing about it was that it was a pure, pure brainstorm. There was no, nothing that could be wrong with it. And people were throwing ideas at each other and then they were connecting them together. And the product, the product in the same session was beautiful, but I thought to myself, well, surely not only artists can have this beautiful luxury of brainstorming, it can be in any environment, really. So um, something to strive for. So I'm, I feel inspired at the moment. Completely out of context, but I thought I'd mention it. But you have, you know, you have the trademark of the firm. You have the trademark of your of your team, and so the clients that get to know you know it's you know Aquila, it's it's um, our construction team at at Trowers, and at least the clients know that there were a number of brains involved. That's, that's an interesting, that's an interesting point because it is a mm-hmm. debate that we often have when it comes to expert work, which is the trademark of the business versus the trademark of the person. I agree. I think that there is very much a, um, I think with the smaller consultants, um, you definitely, I definitely recognize the collection of people and that's, it is the brand and the individuals. But I find with some of the really big ones, the danger is you feel like, uh, are you getting lost in the whole swathes of many, many, many people that, and it's less personal. So I agree with you, Dan, it's, it's almost it's paramount the individual um but you know with the practices that we now work with lots of different people we feel that yes as a package it's great and it is comforting for the client because obviously you know that that expertise all resides there if needed yeah. but yeah with with your appointments it is very much we want this person and it matters less where they are but there's a massive risk for you because you could have a situation where you won on all the legal points and then as a series of technical experts, like, you lose the case for you. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's, yeah. If you just fall over and <laughs> just disintegrate under cross-examination. So there's a massive risk, I would suggest, for lawyers and who you pick and how, how that process goes through, really. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's key to the client's best interest, isn't it? It's always not just the end result, not just the report, not just performance in the arbitral hearing or, you know, the court hearing. It's can they work together sensibly to get to a position where the client's fully advised on risk? Mm. I mean, that's the first concern. You know, are they going to get the technical advice they need to make a decision as to whether, right, we need to settle right now or we know we're going to go for it? Yeah. Um, or we're going to settle anyway, but we know that our claim is good if it all unravels. So I think that is absolutely, you know, right at the front because the commercial objective is the objective, really, a lot of the time. Um, but, yeah, it's, it's, it's very much how the client works and what's in their best interest. But, you know, then that's why there's so much importance put on you, but also so much pressure. Um, you know, it's very tough. I wouldn't want to be in your shoes. It's a really hard job. And um, I think our job's a lot, a lot easier. <laughs> no, ultimately, there's a massive team involved between counsel and lawyers and technical experts. And we all have our roles to play. And I definitely want your role trying to herd cats whilst also do the day job. It, it's, it's a lot of moving parts, isn't it? And I think it's very much team effort. Yes, yeah, it's, it's nice. It's not a lonely job. No, it's not a lonely job until the end. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, it's, it's not a lonely job at all. This is very true. Uh, bringing it back to technical stuff then, or slightly more uh, items related to, to the topic of conversation. At the moment, there seems to be a distinct lack of court cases or, or disputes making it all the way into courts within the UK. 
adjudication gets used very freely and everything goes through adjudication, but actually disputes then proceed into the court seem to be quite limited. Uh, I don't know if you've got the same experience with that one. I completely agree with you, Dan. Um, I don't know whether it's because with litigation, because it's public, um, you know, the, the, the press get hold of these things, write about it, um, you know, the judgments get written about endlessly, particularly ones where there's been cross-examination. We've all seen the, the cases where, you know, like I think you mentioned before, critiquing expert evidence, critiquing individuals. Um, it can be extremely stressful to have all that laid bare. Um, so that must prey on people's minds. And, you know, and I, I know there was obviously the significant cost, but again, that's all public. So I think with other forms of district resolution, because that is all kept confidential, you can see that perhaps the pressures of that aren't there. So, so given the fact that it, the flip side of that is we take adjudication for a moment, and I think it's fairly well-established doctrine that adjudication is rough justice, it's normally good enough, which is why people don't go further, but it has its well-publicised limitations. And there seems to be a, a gap where people aren't satisfied with adjudication, but they don't want to go to litigation. And there seems to be a gap in the resolution process at the moment. Do you think there'll be a bigger move towards arbitration again? No, domestic UK-based arbitration again? I'm not sure because I don't think that for some of the bigger cases you could get around the fact it will almost be as expensive or if not more because you are obviously oh, yeah. playing for the tribunal. So I think even with the sort of fast track processes, the issue is that these things are still expensive. So even when you, I mean, I know there is, obviously there are the low cost adjudication schemes and there are other things that try and cap the costs, which is a very useful thing, I think. Um, but I think my concern is that even a you know medium-sized dispute is, is potentially going to cost thousands of pounds in experts' fees and legal fees that will not be recovered. And so I think there is still that commercial pressure of, do you have a fighting fund when you're already chasing money? Yes. Yeah. Um, and that's the problem. So I think even if you had a, a sort of baby step in between adjudication and full-blown litigation, you'd still come against the problem. Because I think a lot of the time when parties are a bit disgruntled with adjudication, but it's kind of okay, I think the huge driver about it is that they just can't afford to go further. Yeah. Um, don't, what do you think, Laura? Yeah, no, I completely agree. And we also always impress it upon our clients that they can settle at any, any time. I mean, I had a situation where... The, the, the client settled right before the decision in, in, in an adjudication was due to come out or obviously you can avoid the adjudication with that or you can go into full-blown litigation and, and settle at any time um, which which is an option that we always make clear is there so the client can all, always pull the plug and say right let's stop this um, and they have you know commercial drivers they have the uh, confidentiality drivers but going back to arbitration i completely agree with what teresa says i was also going to note as you probably know the arbitration act 1996 is currently being the start the process has just about started uh, reviewing it um i don't think there will be massive uh, differences but then again um then again, the smallest change can result in a huge impact. So watch this space, but I think this will take many months before it's finalised. Yes, absolutely. It, it's just that there's that seems to be that gap between people not necessarily happy with the adjudication decision, but not having the 
not wanting to go to the public um, forum of litigation. It's, it's never going to be perfect because if you want to be really thorough and then you have to enter a much longer and more expensive dispute process, if you want to have something that's shorter, it is, like you say, rough justice and the, and the result will not be necessarily satisfying. So I agree that there is scope for something. I don't know what that something would be, but there is a gap. Yeah. Uh, on that, thank you very much for joining me today. Um, and um, yeah. <laughs> Thanks so much for having us. Thank you so much.